0: Romans chapter 16 this morning, and uh, we're going to be at the end of Romans chapter 16, uh, reading verses uh, 17 uh, through 27. So Romans chapter uh, 16. Starting in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city's tre- the city's the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and The preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writing, has been known to all, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. We ask that we'd be able to delight in what you have for us, that you would uh, teach us and and direct us and uh, use this to to build up our church and to to strengthen us uh, in in the faith, Lord. And we just pray uh, that you would give me the words to say as we uh, move through this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've uh, reached the end of Romans and it didn't take us five years. It didn't take us 10 years. We did it in a little more uh, than a year. Maybe next time we do it, we'll we'll stretch it out more. Uh, But we're at the end of Romans, right? And when you think about last words that people give, last words tend to have meaning. In fact, sometimes people will keep collections of, of last words of famous individuals who've died. Uh, There was one uh, Christian, uh, J. Gresham Machen. He actually started Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, He was actually uh, in the early 1900s was one of the guys uh, sticking up for the truth in his denomination. And they actually uh, ran him out of the denomination. And so uh, they kicked him out because they thought he was uh, being divisive. And yet he was speaking the truth at his death. He caught pneumonia or a cold or something out in the Midwest. He was traveling Uh, Over the Christmas and New Year's holiday at his death, he said, thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. That was actually a telegram that he sent back uh, to uh, I think it was John Murray and a couple of the other professors at Westminster Theological Seminary. Those were his last words and those had had meaning. What was the most important thing? What was the thing that he was focused on the most? And that was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul's not dying here at the end of the Romans, but he is giving us his his last words here to the church. What's what's most important? What is he going to use these last few sentences uh, to remind us of, to to focus us again? And it's going to be the gospel. He's going to settle us on the gospel and the work of God in the gospel. So our main point this morning is simply hold fast to the gospel So that you might grow in it. Hold fast to the gospel. So Paul returns to the very place that he has begun his books to the Romans at. And that is the gospel and the work of the gospel. But he's also going to give some warnings to us as the church. He's also going to give us some warnings that we not uh, be led astray, that we not be pulled into and let other people divide us. And the way that we keep from being divided is we keep our eyes on the truth. And so rather than worrying what everybody else says, if we keep our eyes on the truth and you keep your eye on the truth, then we will have unity. But if someone comes along and they don't have their eye on the truth, then we recognize that they're not unified with us. We don't unify people around personalities. We don't unify people around uh, statuses. We don't unify people around common interests. Uh, we are ner- not the church of Star Trek fans and Star Wars nerds, although I might fit in. Well, There, some of you might not fit in. Well, we are the church that is unified around the gospel. And so the warning is just be on alert because there will be people that come in that this is not their focus. People that don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ and come with ulterior motives. Now, this is not meant to mean that you should look around the room and say, OK, who's the ones that we got to watch out for? This is speaking in a general way. It doesn't mean every time someone comes in, you have to be really suspicious and give them a doctrinal quiz and see how much they know. But it does mean we build the unity of the church around the gospel. So hold fast to the gospel so that you might grow in it. Number one, hold fast to the gospel by watching out for people causing divisions. And And here, Paul, I think, is is kind of like a father, if you will. And he's kind of giving some instructions to his kids. And he's kind of like like saying, you know, like, don't be naive. You might tell your teenagers, those of you that have teenagers or kids that are getting older, you might tell them as they get ready in, to go into the world, you might have to actually kind of remind them that there are people out there that want to do evil. Isn't it great that, that kids are often um, in a good way, oblivious to the things that are in the world? That's part of being a parent. You keep them safe when they're young. You don't expose them to everything that's going on. But But as they get older... You kind of got to explain some of these things, things that maybe would have never crossed their mind of people being deceptive. And so you say, you know, don't be naive. You know, maybe if you have a daughter like I have daughters, you know, you say, don't be naive just because a guy shows interest in you, that his motives are always pure. Those uh, sorts of things. Well, Paul is doing something similar and he's encouraging us to watch out and not associate with people that cause division. So. Avoid people who cause needless divisions. Look at verse 17, if you will. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So, watch out for people that cause divisions. Be on the lookout, be alert. Be prepared that there are people that teach things and hold things and will bring things into the church that are not according to sound doctrine. Paul gives this warning in a number of different ways throughout Scripture. In uh, Acts chapter 20, when he is leaving the church at Ephesus, he gathers uh, all the elders. They're not actually gathering in Ephesus. Uh, They come down to the town that Paul is at as he's passing through the region and he warns them. And he warns them at his departure, he says, there will be false teachers. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Perhaps even from the elder board, if you're not careful, if you're not pursuing true doctrine." Perhaps from inside the church, if you're not consistently pursuing good doctrine, but also sometimes people coming in or moving to the region or coming into the church from the outside. He gives similar warnings to Titus, a young pastor who's in Crete. He says to Titus, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be uh, or he must. He's talking about what an elder should do. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain uh, things that they ought not to teach. And then he says later in Titus three, as a person who. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. And so here the circumcision party is people that are coming in and they're teaching things about how to obey the Mosaic law. Perhaps some of the things that the Roman church themselves have run into. And they're actually corrupting and perverting the word of God. And these things are contrary, Paul says, to sound doctrine. Doctrine. And it's upsetting people and it's even upsetting whole families, families getting in an uproar and perhaps uh, dividing over these things. Paul doesn't tell us what kinds of things might come into Roman. It may be things like that. It may be people coming in with certain backgrounds in Greek or Roman philosophy and they just want to leave the church away. But Paul gives the really clear instruction and it's the imperative. What? Avoid them avoid them. If people are coming in and intentionally trying to divide the church, intentionally trying to stir up things, avoid them. Now, we might formally avoid them in the sense that the church body, you know, someone's a member, you might actually have to put them through some church discipline. And if they they don't respond and they don't respond and they don't respond, or you might have to get to a point where you say, look, you're not holding to the true doctrine you're not listening to, to the elders and the spiritually mature. You're not following the scripture. And, and you can't continue to worship here. You can't continue to preach or teach. Or you, We don't think you're a believer. We might informally avoid them. We might uh, not associate with them. Not hang out with them. Not let them uh, influence us with this teaching that they are bringing. The point is be alert. Deception. I want to talk a little bit here. You see in the next verse, what kinds of things, how do, how do these false teachers operate? And, and this has been true throughout history. You can see it in examples. You can see it in what Jesus says. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive The hearts of the naive. So these people who are stirring up division do not serve the Lord. This is not someone coming in and opening up the scripture and being faithful to the word of God and doing it with a heart that loves the Lord. Look, sometimes in churches and sometimes even between churches, we might have a legitimate disagreement. We still believe the same gospel. But there are churches out there that believe the, the true gospel, but think it's OK to baptize infants. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about some that are in like Presbyterian circles. But they hold to the gospel justification by faith alone. They would they would say amen to probably everything that we've said in the book of Romans. This is a division between brothers. Those people serve the Lord. There are others Who, whether they intentionally know it or not, in their creating division, in their bringing in bad teaching, in their ways that they twist the word of God, where they get stuck on what Paul calls as as myths and empty words. They don't serve the Lord. Someone comes along and they're championing something that's new. They're championing a, a pet teaching Some kind of new emphasis. They they're the only ones that have ever seen this and they're gathering a following. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, they're not serving the Lord. One warning about false teaching, one way to spot false teaching is that no one in the church for 2000 years has ever taught this. There's a consistency if you look at church history. That's not to say that we all agree on everything, but when it comes to core things, the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, salvation, uh, there is a core that you can see that has been passed on, as Jude tells us, the faith passed on to the saints once for all that has continued down through the ages. So if someone comes along and they have some sort of teaching and literally no one has ever said this before. That should kind of set off a light. You know, I need to to investigate this here. Obviously, we should be warned about people who take awkward interpretations, making it an issue to divide over. So sometimes someone will come along with an obscure verse and they will have this. very pet interpretation and and you kinda go, okay, that's that's a little out there. But they don't make a big deal about it. They think, well I I just think this is what it means and it doesn't affect any big doctrine and and so we just you know, we just okay, I don't think you're right, but you're still a brother. Other times somebody wants you to like go all in and follow them on this really bizarre interpretation and they, they basically make a whole club or a clique around this. They're trying to marshal people into their corner. This goes kind of with the third warning of what to look for. Smooth talk and flattery. Don't be deceived. Now, now don't be suspicious of someone that's nice to you, right? You don't have to, to, to not take genuine compliments and those sorts of things. But heresy doesn't come into the church and say, woohoo, I'm a heretic, I'm here, I want you to welcome me. It comes in with smooth talk, with flattery. You're going to like what you hear. It's going to make you feel good. Maybe you, you've seen that kind of person, and maybe you've encountered these people just in the secular realm, maybe at your work. They will, they will, like, butter you up to get you to do something, and then you find out they're really just trying to take advantage of you. They're not really trying to be your friend. They're not really trying to be a, uh, have a friendship with you. They just want to ingratiate themselves on you so that when they ask you a favor, you'll just feel like you have to do it because they were so nice. Smooth talk and flattery, not genuine compliments. But if it's if it's over an abundance in the flattering and then they're bringing in some kind of teaching that's new or different, the the way they get you, the, the hook that they use is that that flattery. They make themselves a likable person so that you don't want to disagree with them because you do kind of like them. Some of the nicest people in the world can be people that are wrong on their doctrine. Now, we can still be polite to them. We can still be we should still be respectful to them. Genuine kindness should still apply and yet be able to say like, hey, no, this is wrong. A lot of times when you confront someone like that who's a flatterer and you tell them this is wrong, their attitudes will change almost instantly. You'll see it right away. You kind of see the motives behind what they're doing. Paul talks about here uh, their appetites. This reminds us of of the language of Philippians 319, talking about uh, people not serving the Lord, who are enemies of the cross. He says their God is their belly. They're, they're in it for themselves. Now, this might mean literally their belly. They're, they're hungry, their food, but, but probably more of a figurative thing, right? They, they have these appetites and desires, and they just love being the center of attention. They're doing it maybe for the money. They're doing it maybe for the prestige. Um, not, not The other week, there was, a, uh, there was a teacher who was a health and wealth gospel kind of teacher. The kind of people that say, you know, if you follow God, you'll become rich. And, and it came out that God had told him, he said, uh, that he needed a fourth jet for his ministry. Like, like not one, not two, not three, but, but a fourth one. That kind of is a sign that his God is his belly. He's in it for himself. He's in it for the, the power and the money Second uh, Second Timothy four, three for a time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions. So do not pretend that people promoting false doctrine and using it to divide the church are serving the Lord. Now, look, I tend to be a guy who doesn't like confrontation. I tend to be the guy that, that wants to find the best possible motives uh, in, in every person. And, and so you try to give people uh, much benefit of the doubt, try to see it from their perspective. But there just comes a point where you can't pretend someone dividing the church, someone coming in with teaching that we've not heard of, that is not grounded in the word of God. You cannot pretend that they're not you cannot pretend that they're serving the Lord. Now, you may confront the person initially and and hope that they repent and say, you know, sometimes you do get a young Christian that just doesn't know some of the scriptures. And so you show them in the scriptures. But but when the person doesn't respond to the scriptures and say, oh, yeah, wow, I I, thank you, pastor. Thank you. So and so for. For helping me see this as a brother, when they dig their heels in, when they become more belligerent, when they double down on what they're teaching, then you need to begin to see it for what it is. You can tell when people are trying to pull other people into their own following. Be careful of people who want the spotlight on themselves, uh, be careful of people who, with a demeanor of arrogance and a type of knowledge, that that they end up being puffed up. There's nothing wrong with studying the Scriptures. There's nothing wrong with knowing the Scriptures. You want that. But if the knowledge of the Scriptures doesn't lead you to be more humble, if it leads you to be puffed up, if it leads you to have a sort of swagger that you know everything, be alert. Know the difference between people who are seeking to divide the church and necessary dividing lines. What do I mean by that? Well, look, the gospel is going to lay a line in the sand and it's going to divide. Jesus even says in the gospels that that following him, it will divide families. There will be people that don't love the Lord and people who love the Lord. And there will be divisions over that standing up for the truth. Sometimes you put a line in the sand and you say, look, this is what scripture teaches For example, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That is a dividing line. And if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, that is a dividing line that you have with them. That Jesus is truly God. Know the difference between necessary dividing lines. Top tier issues. Things of number one importance. And people who come in. Seeking. To divide. They're not laying down the truth. And and saying you know who's with us. They're, They're using. The twisting of the word of God. To create a wedge. And pull people astray. Who don't know the word of God. As I've already said. Don't be naive by smooth talk. And flattery. Some of you might say well you know. Thinking through your church history a little bit. Pastor what about the reformation. I mean didn't that divide the church? And this is why I say know the difference between necessary dividing lines and those who seek to divide the church. At the Reformation, men like Luther and Calvin and, and others, and it was more than, more than just them, there's a whole bunch of them that we, we don't pay much attention to uh, unless you're a church historian. But first, when the Reformation started, it was about going back To the Bible, like Luther didn't just walk into the church and say, "Okay, everybody, follow me. We're heading out. Catholic Church is corrupt. He said, these are things that we see in the Bible. And he wanted to discuss them and debate them. And when he hung his ninety five theses on the church door, that was a way that you would you would put these things out to say, look, we need to talk about these things in our day and age. We would say we need to have a conversation about them. Uh, The the idea being like, like, I'm seeing these things in scripture and I think the church isn't as a whole seeing these things. And, And, you know, Luther also started to have some like minded people around him. But the point is they started going back to the Bible. That was their authority. The second thing that's interesting and we sometimes miss is they actually appealed to church history in a limited fashion. Like they weren't trying to say like, oh, we're the only ones since Jesus who have seen this. Like, like that is what Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, right? That, that right after the time of Paul, everything was corrupt until, until uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses started up. Everybody in that section, because of what they believed about Jesus, had it wrong. Like there were no genuine believers. Like that's a red flag. That's a warning. The, the Reformation, they weren't trying to do that. They were trying to say, look, there's some recent corruptions in the church. They were going back to the Bible, but they were also saying, look, there are heroes in the faith before us that saw some of these things. They only divided from the Roman Catholic Church then when the Roman Catholic Church cut them off and they had no other options. The point I'm trying to say is they didn't come in saying, let's divide the church. They came in and said, let's get to the Bible. And the church that wasn't following the word divided from them. You know, some of you know that in our history here at the church, not long ago, we had a scenario like that. And it was different. It wasn't what Paul is talking about here where people were trying to deceive. It was people trying to stand for the word of God. And then some in the church said, no, we're out. We don't want to deal with that. The point is this. There is a balance between standing for the truth, which we must do, and being on guard for those who want to intentionally divide the church. The last thing we should want to do if we're standing up for the church is divide the church. Or excuse me, standing up for the truth is divide the the church. As I said at the beginning, we are all focused on the gospel. We are all to be focused on on that goal of glorifying God and knowing him. And so it becomes unity in the church becomes what we might call a centered set. We are all centered on one thing or a group of things related to the word of God. And as people come into unison with that, they're they're not coming to our personalities. They're not coming to our flattering talk. They are coming because of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that needs to be what grows the church. That needs to be what we stand firm on. All of these months and weeks that we have been in the book of Romans will be for nothing if we don't stand firm. Firm on the gospel in a loving, compassionate, but clear way. If we let flattering talk come in, if we don't continue to go back to the Word of God and say, What does the Bible say? It's almost like then, Well, why did we preach Romans? Hold fast. To these things hold fast. This is their second thing hold fast to the gospel by continuing to obey the Lord and be innocent of evil. So, uh, kind of a hodgepodge of things going on here. Again, Paul rejoices over their obedience. Verse 19 For your obedience is known to all, so that we rejoice over it. You remember the very beginning of his book, he started about how thankful he was. That they have their faith has been proclaimed throughout the world. They're walking in the Lord. And so he ends on that note. This is, in that sense, a very upbeat book, the book of Corinthians and the book of Galatians. Man, he's got some tough things to say. But this is really upbeat. He's encouraged. He's delighting in them. He wants to get to Rome. But he also says that we should be wise about good and innocent about evil. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You think of Jesus saying that we should be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Being wise about what is good, that includes having discernment. Being able to determine and tell when something good, having good judgment. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say when when complex issues come up, they'll say, well, that's a that's a gray area. But when you're wise about good. The gray area shrinks. Because you understand with clarity what the Word of God says. And part of wisdom then is knowing how to apply it to situations. And we have all sorts of things in our culture that people will say, well, that's a gray area. But the Word of God gives us instructions and it shouldn't be a gray area. Or we take the word of God and we make good and necessary conclusions from it. Good and faithful applications from it. And it shines light into those areas. So what looks like it was gray, suddenly we see it's either white or it's black. Be wise about what is good. Don't be naive. Be discerning. But also... Innocent as to what is evil. In other words, not corrupted by it, not engaging in it, not lured by it. Uh, think here, for example, of the book of Proverbs. It's interesting in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. Folly is personified as an adulterous woman. And there's a lot of things that the early chapters of Proverbs say about um, About uh, adultery, but it kind of is a twofold message. One, don't get trapped into adultery. Men in particular, the imagery is don't be sucked in by by the words that she uses, the way she sweet talks to you, the way she says, oh, my my husband is out of town. I put fresh sheets on my bed. Why don't you just come home and we'll just have a cup of coffee? Now, she doesn't say that, but but you know how that luring works. It starts and then it then it escalates and and, and don't be naive about those things. Be innocent as to to what is evil. Uh, Dame Folly is this seductress. And, and we don't want to get close to the line and and skirt around it and jump over it and see like oh, da, da, I'm getting close, but I haven't crossed over. It's it's be innocent of that kind of Evil. Know the good and stay away from those things. It's kind of like uh, when I was in youth group. I don't don't know if our youth group has asked this uh, yet. And because my kids are now in youth group, they won't probably come and ask me this because this would be embarrassing. But when I was in youth group, uh, you know, the kind of question they would ask is when you're dating, you know, like how far is too far? Can I kiss? Can I hold hands? How much kissing? Uh, You know, is it six inches between them? Is it putting the arm around them? And and the idea is the problem. And I'm not going to try to answer the question uh, that would take a whole sermon. But but the problem with the question is how close can I get to the line without going over the line? See, the real question should be, how do I pursue holiness and godliness in this person that I have an interest in dating and getting to know and perhaps marrying? Be innocent of evil. Don't skirt up alongside of it and get near it. Be wise about what is good. Then the destruction of Satan is coming. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a lot that we could say about this. This is obviously an echo to Genesis 3.15. The promise is that the woman will have a seed and the statement is I will put enmity between you, the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And she will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's interesting about this is that is a promise of Christ. Christ is the one who will defeat Satan. And yet there is here this anticipation that we will share in the victory The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And you think about how Jesus is exalted and it says of Jesus, all things are put under his feet, yet we do not yet see all things put under his feet. He's in charge of everything. He has defeated sin and death on the cross, even though at this moment death is allowed a limited set of of, um A limited reign, if you will, in creation. In other words, people still die until the Lord returns in the resurrection. But it's all under Christ's feet. He's just waiting to, if you will, bring his foot down and stomp it. Somebody told me I should pound the pulpit. (laughs) Stomp it. But here, it'll be also under our feet. The beauty of the gospel is that we come to share in the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has already accomplished. You think of a father perhaps taking his his child out and teaching him how to hunt. If you're not a hunter, I'm sorry, I'm not really a hunter either. But you think of that analogy, right? He comes up alongside of him, teaches him how to use the gun, gun safety, all of those things, teaches them how to aim at, at, at the, the animal that they're going to kill, teaches them how to maybe use the animal properly, like don't kill recklessly, only kill what you can eat, perhaps teaches it how to you know, to, to put the animal down if your shot misses or, or doesn't put it down in the first shot. And, and you almost think of the Lord Jesus Christ coming alongside of us and taking our tiny little feet as children and saying, OK, I've defeated this serpent. Now, put your foot on it. He's under your feet. And, and you're going to crush him with me. I've already defeated almost almost like a, maybe this is a bad analogy, too, but almost like a, a cat teaching her young little kitten how to hunt mice. She's already caught the mouse and she's teaching him how to hunt the mouse that's already trapped. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, not because we're stronger than Satan, not because we're more powerful, but because the gospel in Jesus Christ will accomplish his purposes. And just as Jesus Christ overcame sin and death and Satan, the God of this age, so too in our resurrection, we will overcome sin and death and the God of this age finally this morning be strengthened by the gospel look at how it ends now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. How does God strengthen us? It is in the gospel. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, God strengthens us. God builds us up. God prepares us for glory. How does he do this? Well, it's according to the gospel, the gospel that Paul is the apostle of the gospel that is being proclaimed about Jesus Christ. And what was this gospel? It was a mystery that was revealed, Paul says. Now, Paul doesn't mean here mystery in the sense that nobody knew it was going to happen until it happened. You think about how, and this is just an analogy, how a good mystery novel works. And a good mystery novel lays clues all along the way. The plot develops. You see pieces of the puzzle coming together And then at the end, it's like all the pieces fall into place and you see what the author was trying to tell you. You see what the author was showing you. And so it is with the gospel, because he he tells us here that it has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known. So it's not like a mystery that nobody ever knew was coming. It's not like Jesus showed up one day in the virgin birth and the incarnation and everybody's like, whoa. Whoa. Who came up with this idea? Remember Simeon in the temple? Like he was waiting for it. Why? Because he knew the word of God. He knew the prophetic writings. And so the unfolding history of the Old Testament is pieces get revealed and pieces get revealed and pieces get revealed. And and more knowledge comes. But suddenly what Paul is saying now is the moment where it actually happened. Everything up to that point was just descriptions of what Would happen. And Peter even tells us that that the prophets who spoke of these things, they longed to know the day and the hour that this would come to be fulfilled. That was the mystery. The mystery wasn't that it was coming. The mystery was, when is it going to get here? And it's revealed. And in that revelation, God shows us so much more. But all that he shows, us has been consistently developed through the Old Testament. So we're not undermining the Old Testament. We're not throwing the Old Testament out. We're saying the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and the work of Jesus. It had been disclosed. And now, through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all the nations. Paul is going out and sharing the gospel With people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And they are hearing the command of God, which says, repent. And they are becoming saved. It's going out according to the command of the eternal God. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what does this do? This brings about the obedience of faith. People hear the gospel and they respond to the command, repent, and they obey and believe. And out of that faith, they begin to walk in the Lord. And this is done in such a way that God gets all the glory. Notice where this book ends. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, it kind of reminds us of the midway ending in Romans 11, where the topic shifts a little bit. Paul says, oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If there is one thing that should be the highest priority of our church, it should be that God gets all the glory. Why do you come on a Sunday? I hope you have friends here. I hope you have good relationships. I hope you're being built up. All of those things are good. All of those things are part of the church. But out of all that, on top of all that, the highest goal, are you here to glorify God? Why do you sing the worship songs? Is it because you like the tunes? Is it because you like the guitar and the drums? Is it because you like that we don't sing out of the hymnal? Or maybe you don't like that we don't sing out of the hymnal. Do you sing for the glory of God? Why do you listen to the word of God? Well, hopefully it builds you up. Hopefully it strengthens you. Hopefully it encourages you. Hopefully you learn. It corrects you. All of those things. But do you listen to the word of God for the glory of God? God's purpose in this world is to display his own glory, to manifest his might, his power, his grace, his majesty, the full plethora of his attributes. And we sometimes talk about reformed theology. It's a way of talking about theology that that comes out of the Reformation or was rediscovered, if you will, at the Reformation. Really, it's about going back to the scriptures and saying, what does the scripture say? But one of the things I love most about this category of what we call reformed theology. Is the best writers and practitioners and church members and pastors that have that have followed this way of thinking. At the apex of all of it is God gets all the glory. Salvation is of the Lord. I don't want to get sidetracked into all the terms and niche groups and all that. But does God get the glory? Does your view of salvation, do you put the pieces of the puzzle together that are in Scripture in such a way that I contribute nothing? And one of the reasons that I contribute nothing is that I'm a sinner. But the other reason is that it is so God gets all the glory. So like Paul, he says, you know, I can boast in my weaknesses to that that God will be magnified. I'm not ashamed to say I am completely and utterly a sinner. Why? Because God gets magnified. God gets the glory. And this is the direction that all of Romans drives us. This lofty doctrine of the sovereignty of God, this high truth of of justification by faith alone of our union with Christ, that we are baptized into him, that we can put to death the works of the flesh and walk in the spirit. And all of this comes together in such a way that who gets the credit? Father, Son and Holy Spirit, so that God gets all the glory. That's who I want to be. And I pray that that's who you want to be as a church. Let's pray this morning and then we'll take communion. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to come into your presence and delight in you. We do want to ask that you would get all the glory, that you would get all the majesty, all the praise. That we don't spend enough time thinking and meditating about how great you are, about how awesome you are. About how you have defeated sin and death and wickedness. And yet also reconciled us to yourself. That we who were enemies. Have been put at peace with you. Because you sent the son to die for us. And in none of that did we contribute anything. We praise you for that. We praise you for that. As we partake of communion the symbols of of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us again that it is Christ's broken body and Christ's shed blood that accomplishes the forgiveness of sin. Lord, give us a higher vision of who You are. That as we lift up Your name, we might cry out like Isaiah, Woe am I! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That we have sins and continue to wrestle with sin, and we come to you in your cleansing blood with nothing to offer, simply pleading that you would once again forgive us and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask.